Hi everyone, this is Dorian. I'm host of MedTech Trends. Uh, today we have with us Dr. Damon Ramsey and Dr. Puneet Seth. Uh, now, uh, Dr. Ramsey is the CEO and co-founder of Input Health, and Dr. Seth is the chief medical officer also at Input Health, um, and they're both uh, practicing family physicians, and they've actually trained together at McMaster University. Damon is uh, additionally a clinical associate at UBC. Uh, he works in the student health services department. He's also a veteran technology entrepreneur, uh, having obtained his Microsoft Certified Systems Engineer Certificate in his teen years, and that's, that's really cool. So I'll ask you a little bit more about that, Damon. Uh, he was named top 30 under 30 in business in BC in 2016, and he serves on the boards of various health and technology organizations, including the IT committee of the Vancouver Division of Family Practice. Uh, Puneet is a part-time faculty in the Department of Family Medicine at McMaster University, and he practices in family medicine and occupational medicine. He's also been involved in the digital health industry for over a decade, having been involved in two other startups, one of which was an educational podcast, and another was a preventive health nonprofit. He also participates in several e-health steering committees in Ontario, and he's been involved in both teaching and research in the field of health technology. So welcome, Damon and Puneet. Thanks, Dorian. It's great to be here. Oh, uh, Puni, I'm not sure if we can hear you. All right. Can you awesome. guys hear me now? There we go. There we go. Fantastic. It happens. No worries. <laughs> All good. So I wanted to give you guys a, a warm welcome. I really appreciate both of you coming on and taking time out of your, your schedules to be on the show to talk about uh, your company, Input Health, of course, uh, and then also how you guys got involved in this and what lessons you've learned and, and where you guys see the, the company growing into the future. Sounds great. Awesome. So one of the things I wanted to get into actually is just uh, this unique combination that both of you have, which is a combination of both IT um, and, and medicine and medical practice. Now, obviously, this is not something that a lot of people have. It's a very unique combination. It's also a very in-demand combination of skill sets. And I'm wondering how that came to be for, for both of you. How did you guys start in both of those things? Well, uh, you know, I'll speak from my side. Uh, I you know, it's brought up essentially with computers everywhere. Uh, my dad ran a software consulting company, so it was a pretty natural fit. Uh, this is uh, dating me quite a bit because this is the time of like 486 computers. Uh, I used to have a room full of these boxes and we'd just keep taking them apart, putting them back together again. So I was basically brought up in computers. Medicine actually came second uh, to computers for me. Uh, the combination of both together was very much a natural fit. Um, especially given the, the circumstances and way that, that medicine is evolving um, with digital health technology changing the atmosphere quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, not too dissimilar from Damon. Uh, so I come from a family of engineers. My, my siblings and everyone around me has always been in electrical or computer engineering. So growing up and having older siblings, uh, having them kind of make their cloned computers at home, um, being involved in, in that environment and I'm ultimately interning in information technology, I think heavily exposed me to kind of the role of communication systems. Um, funnily enough, it was actually my parents pretty much uh, growing up said, whatever you do, you know, don't go into technology. We want someone to go into healthcare. <laughs> and it was almost an inevitability that uh, reality kind of pulled me back towards uh, technology. And I think it's actually fantastic uh, to be at a time where the two intersect uh, so tightly. So it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Mm. Just out of curiosity then, because I always wonder this, like, do you see that as a key part of, of your success? And because on the one hand, you could always pool or, or take people and kind of build a team around 
the, the central idea that you have, but if you have those skill sets, you bring those to the team and you can, you can switch your mind between the different perspectives, technology and medicine that, you know, you, you have a huge leg up, I think on a lot of right. other people. Has that been right. instrumental? Yeah, I, I would say that it's, it's a key differentiator. Um, I think Vinod Kosla, who is the Sun, uh, co Sun Microsystems co-founder, this big, big time venture capitalist, multi-billionaire, he kind of created a lot of uh, a havoc around a statement that he made, which is that 80% of physician work will be replaced by machines, machine technology. And uh, the amount of blog posts that were created that were quite resistant to that notion was, was quite a bit. Um, and that's something that we hear quite, quite a lot in the literature now. It's that AI is coming, uh, data science is gonna replace physicians. Uh, but I think speaking on behalf of both Panita and myself working clinically, we know that it's not as simple as that. The nuances of actually practicing medicine tremendously puts us at a different state of mind in terms of the way that we see technology as an interface to be facilitating and augmenting relationships as opposed to what we see with a lot of other companies, which sort of seek to completely replace that human connection. And I think that's really built into the DNA of the company. How do we sort of have an arsenal? Uh, how do we have a toolkit for both patients and clinicians and their care teams so that they can be more effective altogether, uh, more collective, more collaborative, as opposed to the pure technologist viewpoint, which is often very much on the side of how do we replace all these inefficiencies uh, with technology? And uh, Pini, I, I hope it's okay. I spoke for you there a little bit too. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think Damon's spot on there. Um, one of the things we noticed kind of being in the space and seeing uh, so many kind of younger innovators come, many of whom are successful, many of whom struggle. I think one of the, the common threads uh, uh, amongst everyone is really just the fact that um, people sometimes uh, erroneously see healthcare as something that needs to be kind of fixed through this kind of like, okay, you know, you know, we've disrupted retail, we've disrupted banking. Now we just have to completely change everything that happens in healthcare. And it's really, you know, no different than any other industry, but the reality is that um, there are differences and it's not to be said that there isn't an incredible amount of room for changing how things work in healthcare, but those nuances that make healthcare different are incredibly important. Um, some of the ingrained resistance that historically has been there has been there really for the protection of the public. And sure, in certain circumstances, it, it's now represented a barrier where we have better solutions. But I think if people, if people don't have an appreciation of why those nuances are the way they are, they feel like they're constantly kind of hitting a brick wall and, and not really even understanding why that wall is there. So I think one of the you know, advantages that, as Danny mentioned, we do have is that we, we kind of live and breathe that, uh, that nuance every day. Um, and as a result of that, sometimes it's a matter of really uh, building trust with the people that we're working with to help them understand why things need to be done differently. So yeah. And, and Dorian, I mean, like we're we sort of wearing these two hats at the same time, even as uh, Panita's chief medical officer and myself as chief executive officer, um, we're often on call. Um, we're responding to uh, more uh, common uh, issues that one would expect in our practices at the same time uh, developing the software and using it uh, to actually provide care. So that's like something that I think is um, a real incredible privilege and advantage because to some extent, both from the design perspective, but also some sort of like natural QA that happens 
by being a user of your own product in real world settings. I would say one of the things that is quite often lost in a lot of digital health companies is not acknowledging the very special nature of the software that we're distributing, which is that no other software actually involves a live interaction, like ours in this case, which would be health records, a live interaction where while you're on the screen, there's a person that's vulnerable in front of you. It could be a person who's talking about how they're suffering from depression. It could be someone that you've just diagnosed with cancer. And I don't know any other software where you literally, I mean, you can't afford to have bugs. You can't afford to have all this clicking going on when you have that person that's vulnerable in front of you. So that kind of uh, reality-based uh, sort of uh, approach that we have, which is real-world use, uh, it actually results in, I think, uh, us moving a lot faster to understand the intricacies and the challenges that exist in our space. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you guys both brought up really, uh, really interesting points. Um, and we'll get back to the, the part about how this technology actually works and, and how you can actually use it in, in real practice that both of you have been using um, and you see a lot of other people using going forward. And one of the things that uh, that stands out is, in my mind, so so both of you bring a very unique perspective. And there, I don't think that there are too many people that can actually say that, you know, you've built something that you find useful in your own day-to-day -day practice. And so as a technologist, it's Damon, you pointed this out. This would be somebody that, that comes in from a non-traditional um, background into the healthcare industry and just basically says, okay, fine, here's yet another industry where we can throw in a bunch of technology and then it's supposed to solve all these different problems. But and for all intents and purposes, maybe there is a, a system that you can build that can replace um, all the decision-making or, or a huge chunk of the decision-making that a physician would make. Would make. But it's not about that, right? That that is not that's not the solution to the problems that are actually happening. It's 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 a bigger there's a bigger system there. You know, to implement system wide changes, you have to look at this holistically, and it's not just a matter of exactly another piece of technology. We'll just throw it in there, and then it's going to solve this little bit, and then this other little bit, and then you put it all together, and then it pushes out everything that used to be. It does. It's not working like that. It doesn't work like that, right? Exactly, and also the velocity of change. I, I think there's a lot of frustration for the lack of really great examples of unicorns in digital health, uh, amazing Silicon Valley cases where you've produced multi-billion dollar companies overnight. Uh, actually, in our, in our space, uh, if you look at it, um, let's say specifically health records, the two largest uh, um, you know, businesses in the space are from Kansas and Wisconsin. Uh, both states that are not known for you know, producing great software. Uh, but the one thing that's actually really interesting about that is in those states uh, and in both of those companies, there was a very much a long-term vision and view. And uh, I think that is something that maybe the venture capital world is not uh, appreciative of in healthcare. Uh, those guidelines that we have, those standards, that compliance, uh, you can to some extent skip that in certain industries I mean, there's, I guess, examples to the contrary, like self-driving cars, where, you know, you really don't want to skip those standards because you can really hurt people. But in our space specifically, there is reason for regulation. And that exists both in the case of data privacy, but also the functionality that you promote. And we see a lot of uh, new things coming out, not get, gaining the sort of the, the wings that they would expect right away, 
um, because the industry is actually not set up for rapid innovation. And I would say that should be by design. That really should be by design. Okay, interesting, interesting. So, it, so would you say that we're kind of going into almost like a philosophical bend here, but would you say that you know, technology would have to work within the existing structure as opposed to disrupting it completely? There are people who have tried to disrupt healthcare completely and they keep hitting walls. And I think it's because this is a multi-sided market um, and it's not conducive practically for that sort of rapid innovation that we can see in other industries like social media. So I, you know, I'm running a software company, so I don't hope I come off as uh, sounding like completely conservative and reactionary. However, we recognize that these types of industries, including healthcare, um, finance to some extent as well, the velocity of change, you should prepare for a slower velocity and a longer runway to really actually respect the sort of nature of what you're doing. Um, and uh, Panit, you know, like we consider our company a success, but it's been a seven year overnight success, right? Um, it's, it's, you know, if you, if you talk to us, uh, you know, seven years ago, we probably thought we would have been a lot farther than where we are now. Uh, but now that we're actually in it and we're completely entrenched in it, we recognize that we're actually a lot farther than our competitors that are new players in the space as well. And a lot of it had to do with the diligence to validate and sort of really get strong backing for the types of interventions that you promote. Yeah, I'll probably add to that. And, you know, the, the irony of this is that, you know, as practicing physicians going into the space, um, it's funny because, you know, you, you assume that, you know, you would know better about certain things. And, you know, as kind of younger entrepreneurs, we have the same vision, you know, that we're, uh, that everyone has, which is that, you know, you can quickly change things, you know, you, you set this, you set this environment up in the cloud, and then you can ship it out kind of at volume. And as we were literally going through those motions and going through those attempts at saying, how do we quickly move things? Uh, we became more and more cognizant of the fact that um, there, there's, a hum there's an enormous human element to the entirety of what we're trying to do. The technology uh, is really almost like the smallest part of it all. There's a cultural change that comes with accepting that care needs to be delivered differently. And that cultural change is not specific just to physicians or healthcare providers or even just the system. It's actually a, it's a, it's actually a public change. Um, you know, the example I like to, to give is that, you know, if you ask someone to say, you know, and, you know, this was different five years ago from even today, but if you asked someone and said, you know, I can send you um, your lab results uh, electronically uh, over the internet and you'll be able to access it, there, there's a huge cultural leap that's required for people to be comfortable with doing that. Uh, and that's only really begun to change today. Five, 10 years ago, this society was not okay with the idea of being able to have electronic health. Mm -hmm. uh, all those things change and you, you can't downplay the fact that, um, you know, you have to work with the human element of the, of the change. And then the technology is really kind of the piece that sort of facilitates that. And that's really led to a lot of our growth, uh, kind of the understanding that um, we have to invest in the change management and the cultural change and respect the fact that everyone is a stakeholder in the process, patients included. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned a, a really interesting perspective there. So back, let's say about six, seven years ago, when you're first thinking about creating a serious you know, solution to, to problems that, that you were seeing uh, in real practice, in real clinical practice, and you were thinking ahead to what this might look like a few years down the road, um, you envisioned 
something that could potentially be uh, adapted rapidly because it's an obvious solution to, to a real problem that people are having. The flip side of it, of course, is that a lot of the resistance came from the, the culture um, and uh, the rate at which people actually just accept and, and adapt these, this new way of actually doing uh, the work, doing uh, clinical practice. But I'm curious, um, since you mentioned the, the, the culture, the environment, um, do you think that, and I'm thinking of, you know, from my own perspective as a patient, I would have, you know, I would love to have access to my own medical record. So to, to me, that's an, that's an obvious, like, yes, of course I want to do it. And if it's possible to do it tomorrow through an application, okay, uh, you know, I would be on board with that so I can track my own medical records going back to you know, the first time I went to a GP's office. So from a patient's perspective, I can't imagine it being a difficult decision, but you know, who are the other stakeholders do you feel that, who are the primary stakeholders that really, I don't want to say caused a lot of resistance, but let's say were Friction, you know, yeah. one of the gatekeepers. Yeah, I mean, there was two companies that you know, are pretty well known, Microsoft and Google, that really started their venture into healthcare with precisely that notion. As a patient, uh, we want records. We want to have access to our records. So there's two products. One of them is called Google Health. The other one's called Microsoft Health Vault. Google was a lot smarter. They shut theirs down like much, like a few years ago. Microsoft actually shut down Health Vault very recently. And I think it was a rude awakening for these behemoth, innovative, uh, you know, massively uh, entrepreneurial companies that their approach in healthcare just didn't work. So they produced this personal health record and they said to the hospitals and the stakeholders, government, payers, insurance, doctors, hey, just push all your data in here. It's safe, it's secure, and it's gonna work. The patients will be happy and we're gonna solve this major problem, which is interoperability, which is when you move between site to site, why is there complete amnesia about what's happened to you in between? Mm -hmm. And those were case studies that we learned about because we were actually kind of watching these things from a distance. Are these going to become competitors to us? We don't want Google to be our competitor. That's not a good competitor to have. <laughs> uh, and when we saw that they actually basically failed and actually failed pretty miserably as well, uh, it comes down to that stakeholder involvement. So the physician might say, well, I'm already clicking a thousand times a day, and this is my big frustration, and the solution that you're producing is not solving that. It's actually adding more clicks for me. And in fact, what it's doing is producing probably more questions, which is a very legitimate uh, you know, grievance. I mean, as soon as you open up records, there's, there might be more questions associated with it. However, um, I would argue, and our company argues in our software, the more you actually open up, and the more intelligently you do it, probably the easier your life will become as a clinician. But at that time, it's like, I just got to push these things into this new thing. And then you come into my clinic and I got to open up a new window and I got to bring up your personal health records so I can see what happened elsewhere. That wasn't really a system solution. So to some extent, that stakeholder engagement, it's got so many different angles to it and so many different people with very, very different agendas there isn't really a lowest common denominator. So I think what actually flies and what works is when you actually address who are the operators. So we, we decided a long time ago to move away from uh, B2C, business to consumer, to B2B, which was let's go straight to the clinics because the clinics are the ones that have pain points. The patients definitely have pain points, but most of their pain points are related to the suffering of the clinic's pain points. 
And so if we reduce frictions in, in electronic medical records, probably that will actually open up new opportunities for clinicians to increase accessibility. And that's where I would say is the part where we can actually draw on our clinical backgrounds. When we talk to patients as doctors, the first thing they say is not, I want to have access to my health record. It's actually, can I get access to a damn doctor in the first place? Forget about the record. If you can't even access primary care in Canada, in a city like Vancouver, if you're a new import into Vancouver, good luck getting into any mm. primary care facility altogether. Uh, you'll be going to walk-in clinics and you might get access to your records, but it would be useless if it's just three lines of very bad non-longitudinal care. So the problems themselves um, and the pain points, we look at them strategically, sort of like a game of chess. Where are we going to get our most leverage? And ultimately, we really want to serve the patient because that actually solves the majority of the societal problem. But the clinician is actually the one to unlock first. That's our opinion as a company. And that's the reason why we actually focused on making doctors and their care teams our clients as opposed to patients. Mm -hmm. And, and Puneet, uh, I've had a chance to, uh, to speak with you in, the, in a different conversation, but within the context of, of your practice. And uh, so I'm, I'm wondering, if, when you're working in an interdisciplinary team and you've got more than just um, you know, your own role as a physician, but you're also interacting with other nurses and admins and uh, all, all kinds of different techs within the, the, um, the clinical department, Th those are also key players, like key stakeholders. Uh, as well, right? Are those mm -hmm. different perspectives that you're taking into account when, as you're thinking through this, uh, building this company? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think far too often uh, we forget that, you know, healthcare is a team sport. Um, and in fact, I think it was um, Atul Gawande that kind of pointed that out very much uh, in terms of us needing to move away from the idea of, you know, cowboy-based physician-centric medicine to the fact that there are skills that uh, a diverse healthcare team brings to the table. And each of those team members uh, plays a, a unique role. Uh, they have an area of expertise. And as a result, um, their interaction with the technology is incredibly important. And again, very nuanced. If you're a pharmacist, you're going to, be want, you're going to want to be able to, to dive deeply into the medication reconciliation process, the idea of you know, when something was last prescribed, how many tablets are left, and so on. Uh, but you you may not, for example, need to go into uh, other elements that are typically uh, very much significant parts of health records. Similarly, as a nurse, you're going to want to be able to interact with the platform in certain ways. And the ultimate thing that becomes incredibly important about the entire picture is the fact that you have a number of, of specialized players um, that require the capacity to be able to communicate with one another. They need, uh, they need to be able to share their expertise and their perspective. They need to be able to do so in a way that's meaningful to the care being delivered. Um, and I think that's really central to the idea of, of kind of what we're, why we're doing what we're doing, which is that there needs to be a collaborative platform that allows people to uh, jointly work together towards the mission that's specific to, to patients, which is the promotion of their health. Do, so, do, yeah. yeah, sorry, but I, I just have to, like, I have to jump in there. I, I think it would be hard for, mm -hmm non-clinicians to appreciate the absurdity in which the documentation is done in healthcare right now. Mm -hmm. like literally, sometimes in hospitals, we have these very expensive electronic health record systems. Mm -hmm. And then we also have paper charts. And then different team members write on different types of pa paper still uh, with different color coding associated with it. 
And to some extent, if you've completely eliminated the paper charts, which is a noble and lofty goal, uh, they replicate that exact model into the digital system, which is that if you're a nurse, you're gonna be writing in this area. If you're a dietitian, you write in this area. The doctor doesn't look at that. The, the nurse maybe doesn't look at what the doctor writes. There's so much focus on documenting what the heck is happening. And at the same time, it's not coordinated or collaborative at all. And everyone's in their own silo. So, I mean, we call our product the collaborative health record precisely because we wanted to move away from this notion of electronic health record, which, was which accomplished precisely that. It took the health record as it is and made it electronic. I basically mimic the paper on the digital screen to the, to the T. Mm -hmm. And that's absurd. It's actually the whole purpose of software in the age of internet and connectivity is communication and engagement. We don't want a system of record. We want a system of engagement. So that's really like the sort of driving force of Input Health is, is moving to that, to that model. Mm -hmm. And I can, I can attest to that. That was a funny point because, funny but also not so funny. But I, I've been in uh, clinical settings um, doing clinical research and, and different types of studies, but um, doing a, something called a chart review where you're trying to extract information for a study and you're looking at physical charts or a mix of physical charts and, and electronic uh, health record systems is a really tedious, extremely tedious thing to do to look at, you know, stacks of, you know, like 10 inch binders. And, uh, and then on top of that, to dig into platforms that really look like a, a slightly updated version of MS DOS and they have all these different modules that are linked to different departments and it just, it, it's, it's extremely difficult to navigate. Um, I, so I'd imagine that even if you're trying to onboard and you're trying to get used to these systems, so it's, it's, it's not intuitive. A lot of them from what I've seen in, in my own work, it's um, oftentimes the information is, is not, it's, it's not really integrated truly to the point where you can actually easily see what these different uh, specialists are, are entering information for and often, the case is that anybody that's actually working with a with a patient upfront, and I can speak to this in terms of having worked in an emergency department and, and on a project involving clinical workflows and how to improve that, people just want quick information. So if, if they're not seeing it quickly, and you have to, if you have to navigate through 14 different tabs to find that little piece of information, how, how efficient can that possibly be? I, I, it doesn't seem like it is. Absolutely. And I, I think one of the interesting things that you highlighted there is the fact that, again, there is that inherent in, uh, inefficiency. And now imagine if you had a solution to that, for example, such as ours, and you kind of unleashed it on a clinic or an organization and said, go for it. Now, we've given you kind of a, a collaborative space to work. Now start collaborating. It, it, that, it doesn't quite independently answer that question. And that's where this kind of all ties back to the fact that we have to work with these team, with, with teams, with healthcare providers and say, here's actually here's actually the thing that you've been wanting to do, your underlying objective, which is really to, to get the single holistic document associated with this interaction. It could, it could be, for example, uh, a visit associated with someone's diabetes where you might have a nurse involved, a nutritionist involved, a pharmacist involved, a family doctor involved. And previously, they really didn't have the way to even be able to share their information on, in one location. So providing a technology solution alone does not achieve that. I think helping people understand that you have to co-design a workflow with them and then having the technology facilitate that is really where all this comes together. And I think that kind of drives back that whole point around why it's so easy to, 
to for, for technologists to throw out solutions, but then completely lack the understanding that although this, their solution might be great, if you don't have that contextual understanding of of those objectives and and the the culture in which people are trained as as nurses, as dietitians, as pharmacists, as social workers, as family physicians, as specialists, we're we're actually not inherently uh, taught to be able to collaborate efficiently. We're just sort of taught, you know, as Damon mentioned, to work in a paper world, and now we just kind of carbon copy that into an electronic format, which is why people are uh, are experiencing the the suffering that they are with these systems. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a lot of a lot of great context for uh, leading into the technology that you guys have uh, developed. So so let's dive right into that. So of course the the company is Input Health, and um, the mission. Uh, and I'll just quote here from a previous conversation that we had. The mission is to improve the way that people receive healthcare around the world by providing a platform that makes clinical practice streamlined and efficient while providing a medium for patients to access and share their health information. And so the, the first thing that I did, of course, if you go to Input Health, and I believe the, the website is inputhealth.com, just right. correct me if I'm wrong, perfect. Yeah. So I, I, of course, I, I went onto the website. First impression, of course, was that this looks like a modern website, which is fantastic because when you go on to a lot of other health technology <laughs> websites, it, it looks like, um, well, like it's the year 2000. So, so it's, you know, it's, it's updated, it's new, it's fresh. It, it actually looks very inviting to actually use that platform, which I can certainly appreciate. Um, and from, uh, from what I've seen, there are, there are three main products and, of course, a host of other tools and modules that can be used for a variety of different applications. So I wonder if we can just go into those, uh, let's say even like one by one, or maybe maybe you guys can give me an overview of, of what the company uh, really provides. Yeah, I think, you know, to, to connect the products and solutions that we offer to that vision and mission statement that you outlined, um, and you know, without getting like too detailed, because depending on who's listening, it might actually be kind of obscure because a lot of it's like, you know, it's quite entrenched in terms of the medical community's needs. I would say that the one consistent factor is that we serve clinics. Uh, Clinics could be large, like the Mayo Clinic, for example, which is one of our customers, or they could be, uh, you know, 10 doctor uh, family practice in the middle of Winnipeg um, or Manitoba for that matter. Um, So that is actually the common unifying theme. Clinics run as businesses, and they ultimately provide care to their clients, which are patients. And everything that we do is designed to make it so that those clinics can more effectively provide accessible care that especially has mechanisms built in for engaging and empowering patients, but also tracking outcomes. So the, the three products that are listed there, the collaborative health record, the patient reported outcome system, and the virtual care module. I mean, all of those to some extent in different combinations solve the same issues, which is accessible, accountable, outcomes-based care. Um, but you know, part of the way to reduce a lot of the complexity um, in terms of understanding our solutions, uh, right now, as it stands, we don't serve patients. So if you came to that website, inputhealth.com as a patient, um, even though it might look nice and you know you want to fill out a form, which actually happens quite a bit, uh, we get lots of patients filling out our contact form asking us for help. Uh, and we have to sort of redirect them back to the clinic. Uh, really, our fundamental goal is to serve the needs of the clinic. And that means the clinical health team, the administrative staff, the owners of the clinic, everything to do with practice management, 
from billing, documentation, scheduling, um, and pushing those things forward again so that we're not just mimicking paper workflows of the past, um, but also sort of enhancing those functionalities so that they make sense in an age of mobile and, uh, you know, the internet of things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, okay. And so there's all, all of this, like you said, is really centered around one, one particular function. Um, is there, is there a reason why, and, and obviously this is something that's evolved over the years, but let's say, what was the, what was the main um, solution that you thought this would be a great starting point for really improving the way that, that healthcare is delivered? How, how did that start out? You want to take a stab or shall I go? Uh, no, I, I, can, I can really take a stab at this one. So I think that if you kind of really roll things back to, to when, you know, when the company was starting and kind of the initial vision, the idea was obviously that we wanted a way for you know, these things that we all kind of walk around with to serve as conduits for information sharing and, and bi-directional information sharing. So the basic premise was someone is seeking care. We want to know about them and why they're seeking care. And we want to give relevant information back. Um, and that, you know, back in, you know, 2011, 2012 was uh, for all intents and purposes, almost entirely absent. And to, to various extents, people are becoming more used to the fact that there's now an opportunity to have a digital conversation. And I, I think the, the vision was, if you have a way to be able to share information, to give information back, you can begin to have a new narrative with respect to how you deliver care and how people access care. Um, the classic example I think of is, uh, you know, and especially as a family physician, one of the common things we see is, you know, people coming in with something like the flu. So if you, if you're somebody who's worried about some of the symptoms you're having and you're about to go and seek care from your family doctor or another healthcare provider, you're going to want to share information about the care that you want to, to access. That information can be used in advance to be able to determine the type of care that you should be getting. And if you collect, you know, if we collect the right piece of information, you could technically tell the person that you perhaps are, are, are wasting your time by coming in because everything is pointing towards the sign of you having uh, a, a viral cold or, or a flu. And these are things you need to begin to, uh, to do. And these are communications that you can begin to have. So the underlying conversation being here around mobile devices and ways of being able to have communication with patients. Um, I think we saw that begin to, to, to take hold. And I think we saw the opportunity for, for this sort of technology to be utilized quite readily in, in research environments and uh, in, you know, in large organizations like the Mayo Clinic. But what was obvious was that if we wanted to be able to create uh, a scalable impact that extends beyond just the research and academic world, um, we needed to be able to have some kind of an interface with the health record system environment, with you know, what we call electronic medical records uh, in healthcare. And I think that's where, that's where we were really faced with that kind of fork in the road, which was, do we kind of become a company with this incredible idea and this, this platform that allows organizations to be able to collect the, the, inf the correct information in advance and share it back? And do we sit on top of, you know, these legacy health record systems or uh, could we do something far more uh, audacious, which is really to challenge the idea of the health record itself. And what was clear uh, was that, you know, and uh, again, I think uh, Damon will agree, agree with me when I say this was that, we, did, we never really sought out to build a health record platform. Uh, this was never our, our kind of dream or intention. Um, and, you know, we shared the same concerns that so many people have with respect to the fact that, oh, this is incredibly complicated. There's so many 
privacy security concerns, it's a saturated market. Um, but what was obvious in seeing our peers was that everyone was saying, you know, you guys are onto something really good. Can you just complete the story? Can you, can you get me off the platform that I'm using? And can you let me complete my healthcare interaction with my patient population on your platform? Because you guys are almost there. And I think that's really when things began to snowball. And again, you know, we never really had that single aha moment uh, in terms of that's when everything was changing, but it was really this kind of recurrent conversation we were having with our colleagues, you know, with our partners, that was really around the fact that people were extremely unhappy with the, the core infrastructure that was in front of them. Um, and I think that's when we kind of realized that, you know, in order to be able to make a scalable change, we really have to provide people with a complete end-to-end -end solution, which is what the collaborative health record is. Mm -hmm. And I'll come back to that example about the, uh, the Mayo Clinic, because uh, you have, uh, there are a number of collaborations that, that you've had over the last, the last couple of years. The Mayo Clinic certainly stands out, and so we'll come back to that in just a minute. But I wanted to get a sense, uh, just let's say from, from my perspective, I'm a patient, I'm going into a clinic. Okay, so how, how would I make this work for, for me? So I know that there's, a, let's, let's actually do this from two sides, right. me as a patient, and then we'll also look at it from the physician's perspective and how that improves uh, delivery of healthcare and also workflow. But for myself as a patient, what can I do? So, I mean, let's look at the current status quo. If you're, if you're talking about healthcare, for the most part, for most people, the saddest thing in the world is if you wanted to go into a clinic, you basically have two options. One is you go into what we call walk-in clinic, and so you don't have an appointment, and you might end up having to wait an hour and a half in a waiting room, a bunch of people coughing and sneezing around you, not ideal whatsoever. Or what you're going to have to do is pick up your phone, which is a really weird concept altogether. Pick up your phone and actually use it to call someone that you don't even know to request an appointment. And that is actually the starting point of what you know just doesn't make sense in 2019. Actually, it didn't even make sense in 2010, as far as I'm concerned. Because really what it comes down to is you actually have a problem the implicit assumption of the healthcare system is that you need to actually see someone physically to get it solved. And that's a wrong assumption. I would say 30 to 40% of the time, it's entirely unnecessary to even see anyone altogether. But in order for us to actually solve that problem, you need to actually have logic built in that would allow that person to get the right answer to their problem based on their context with very little um, error space. I mean, you can't, uh, you know, if someone has a problem where they actually need to see the doctor and your system triaged between whether it was better for them to sort of uh, wait at home and get some, let's say, questionnaire that they follow up on versus actually getting that appointment booked, um, that could be a big problem if they were actually meant to see a person. So with our software, let's go back to you, Dorian, as a patient. What if you had a problem which I could help you with without you having to see me at all? I mean, one of the things that the industry is really fixated on is video connection, uh, which we do support uh, because there's demand for it and there's also a place for it. But arguably, the majority of communication that exists in our lives right now is asynchronous. It's non-live communication. And for anyone who knows, I mean, if you try to FaceTime call uh, a friend, not your family member, because maybe your grandmother or your father wants to see your face, that's the one exception for FaceTime or Skype. But if you try to like just randomly call them with video, it would be considered absurd. And to some extent, 
using that connect that sort of uh, analogy, um, even with the clinician patient relationship, a lot of what we can do can be done asynchronously through micro visits, through micro interactions, through small back and forth that are actually logical and efficient. But Dorian, that's also where the problem exists. If I give you a free text box where you can type all your problems in your life, and not in your case specifically, because I'm sure you don't have many problems. You're, you're a good looking guy, you're a great, business, great podcast, all these things are great. But for a lot of people, you give them that text area, and what the physician's gonna get is unstructured narrative from an untrained uh, person explaining their problems and that's very inefficient. So what our software has to do is allow for the clinic to collect information in a systematic and logical way prior, during, and after visits, potentially making visits entirely unneeded, but it needs to be able to process that information and present it. And that's actually where we, you know, I think we're very different than other health record platforms because what they really start with is yeah, well, Dorian's got a problem. He's going to call the clinic. Maybe there's going to be this online booking thing, but let's not have any concept of being able to collect information from him in an intelligent fashion. And let's start at the point where I, frustrated family doctor who's on my 35th patient for today, is typing what you could have told me two weeks ago when you were booking the appointment, if I had a smart gateway, if there was some sort of intelligence layer between the, between mm -hmm. the clinician and the patient. So, so would I be entering this information? Like, would I be sending a text to you? Would I be uh, doing like a FaceTime type of thing with you or as it, a physician? It's completely contextual. So for, for one thing, again, not to get too ahead of us ourselves from a technology perspective, of course, most clinics, they will have a, an active phone line. I used to get in trouble because I would walk into a sale and I would say, we're going to get rid of your phone line. And I would do it. <laughs> You know, it would really scare people quite a bit because it's like, where's this guy coming from? Our entire business runs through this phone line <laughs> and these fax lines as well. But, you know, to some extent, um, you as an educated person in an urban environment, you could probably readily explain the general theme of your problem, which mm -hmm. is, for example, uh, let's say I'm, I feel like I, I have hearing loss after I've gone to a concert or I have a sore throat or uh, my family member has this problem and it's affecting me uh, in terms of I, I can't focus anymore at work, whatever that might be. You give us that general theme and the software has the branching logic and the decision logic so that it can sort of streamline you to get what you need based on what that clinic provides. Mm -hmm. And that clinic could decide that they don't wanna provide virtual care, that they can only support physical visits and that works perfectly fine. We have a lot of traditional clinics using our software and still reaping the benefits. Mm -hmm. um, but for the most part, where we're trying to move, uh, move that needle uh, is towards the side of how can we automate it right from that starting point so that you actually can get triaged into the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. And that would save me time, of course, as a patient, because the last thing I want to do is walk into a, a walk-in clinic or even, even my, my family doctor and have to wait there for hours around oh, yeah other sick people hundred percent hundred percent okay so 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 i i think i was probably a little bit too abstract there ultimately you go to a page on your phone or on your desktop and you say what the general theme of your problem is and the system sort of guides you into whether you're going to end up booking an appointment or whether that could actually be booked as a virtual appointment or theoretically could actually be a gateway where it redirects you altogether. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of private 
clinics that use our system where they, you know, 20% of the time are seeing people that wouldn't even be able to actually even access their service in the first place. You could ask some simple questions so that we can make that more efficient for the patient and the clinic. I see. Okay. Okay. And uh, okay. Now let's, let's flip perspective. So as a physician, you've just, uh, you're starting to use this, the software. Um, how is this changing the way that you're delivering care? How is this changing the way that you're seeing patients, your workflow? Uh, is there an impact on efficiency? Absolutely. So I can tackle this one. So I think the fundamental thing is that there absolutely has to be uh, an impact on efficiency for something to be adopted in this day and age. And I think uh, when we really boil down to the areas where, you know, you see uh, clinicians, healthcare providers experiencing uh, frustration uh, or, or I, I guess their pain points in their practice, one of the major recurring themes comes down to the fact that their platform uh, demands more administrative responsibility from them than it does help them in the process of delivering care. And this can further be distilled down to the point where people feel like they're spending too much time documenting, clicking on forms, you know, dictating notes, and, and that's taking away from that opportunity to have a therapeutic relationship to look at a patient and to provide care. Um, and, and over the years, also to, to provide context to some of your listeners uh, who might not be in healthcare, uh, over, the, over the years where kind of uh, insurance requirements, uh, you know, healthcare system requirements, uh, medical legal requirements have increased, that requirement for documentation has only gone higher. So it's made uh, clinicians kind of feel like they're cornered against a place where they have to document more and more. And in a time where there's a more demand to, to see patients, you feel like less and less time is actually being spent seeing patients. So the place where we bring in that efficiency is, is really, uh, and one of the places where we bring in that efficiency from the healthcare provider's perspective is in documentation. Now, if, as Damon mentioned before, when we have an opportunity to have a contextually appropriate, you know, uh, objective-driven conversation with the patient, somebody coming in requiring their cough and cold, uh, questions around, around their cough and cold, we've asked them questions about their cough and cold in a structured uh, branching logic format that they answered on a questionnaire on their phone, that information can be converted into the clinical component or the subjective history component of documentation that a clinician has to do, which depending on, on the type of visit can represent, you know, 50% of the documentation they're doing. So you can imagine, you know, you know, you go and, go and see your doctor and, you're at, and they're going to ask you, okay, well, how many days have you been sick? Um, have you had any fevers? How high was your fever? Um, what medications have you already taken? These, these, these steps that now, you know, systems are creatively looking to either download to, to triage, you know, medical triage assistants or scribes or medical students or residents. All these things can actually come from, you know, the proverbial horse's mouth, which is the patient giving their true narrative on their phone in advance and pre-populating the documentation so that, it, you know, myself as a physician, when I'm seeing a patient, I already know what's been going on. I'm not worried about, uh, you know, documenting everything down and making sure I have it complete or, or clicking on, on these power forms. I'm actually able to look at the person and say, hey, you know what, I had an opportunity to look at that questionnaire that you completed. Thanks so much for, for doing that. Um, tell me a little bit more about what was going on a week, you know, a week and a half ago when this first started. And I can look at the person, I can begin to look at, you know, the, the nuances of how they're feeling, what they're really worried about, and not worry so much about the documentation. Right? I can review that instead. So that's where we've shown that depending on the type of interaction, depending on you know, the nature of the visit, 
we can save anywhere from 30 to 60% uh, time for the clinician that they would otherwise spend in documentation. And we actually had a, a recent uh, um, quality study that we did through the Mayo Clinic that showed that in the case of psychiatrists, it can reduce the amount of time they spend documenting by 60%. So wow. again, so again, that's time that, that the psychiatrist could now spend either a, seeing more patients because they, you know, they have a backlog and they want to see more patients, or it's time that they can spend perhaps actually having lunch and having a glass of water and, and addressing you know, human needs, which are all too often forgotten. Mm -hmm. but, or C, it can, it, can, it can be time that, that, that's spent perhaps having a deeper therapeutic interaction with the patient. So again, it's time that goes back into the system. And, and I'd say that amongst the kind of the myriad of, of values that are brought back to the provider, I'd say that's one of the, the key points that really, that really hits home. I can see this also improving uh, patient satisfaction. Oh yeah, it, yeah. It, because right because this is uh, if I can if I can provide all this information in advance, somebody actually reviews it. Um, I don't necessarily I don't have to repeat it. Um, it doesn't waste it doesn't waste your time. Um, yeah. And I've already said everything I need to say with related to the problem that I'm coming in for. Um, yeah. And and I feel like I would have had my information heard. Right, my my opinion, my perspective, my story is actually heard, um, as opposed to being rushed and you know for for the next person to come in. Yeah, I mean, we, we want to really emphasize that um, whether it's a specialist practice or it's primary care, longitudinal care, whatever the format of that clinic, pre-data catch is extremely important on both sides. It just makes for a much better communication. I, the one analogy sometimes I use is imagine if you went to your financial analyst um, and they had never asked you for any information prior. So as you're sitting with them, they're going through your tax statements and your income statements and things like that while you're sitting there. It would be a very unproductive visit because they're supposed to actually provide you advice. And that's actually how we've been behaving for the longest time, which is as you're sitting in front of me, Dorian, I'm opening up your labs and looking at them for, you know, maybe I saw them two weeks ago, but generally speaking, we haven't been tracking you. And so you kind of look at me like I'm not very smart or I'm not doing my job really well but I have 30 patients to see today. And if I wanted to review for like one hour, every patient that was gonna be seen today, the day prior, then I'm gonna to have to work half the time. So the better way to do it is actually to engage the patient so that we, we can longitudinally track how they're doing as well, even in between visits. So a lot of what we've been talking about right now, it's sort of inferring uh, the first visit kind of situation where you have your sore throat or it's sort of like episodic care. But the real holy grail is actually on the longitudinal care. Mm -hmm. You come in, you see me for depression, and we have a module that's running that's passively asking you questions that will help me sort of understand how you do between visits. Because, I mean, again, going back to that whole electronic health record thing, uh, it also assumed that the patient only exists for the five minutes that they're sitting in front of us. Mm -hmm. Once you're out of the clinic, you don't exist. You don't, you don't have a life. You're not a human being. You're nothing. You come in for five minutes, I ask you how you're doing right now, that's what goes into the record. And, and our system actually gives clinicians the ability to track that information over time. And I, I, using the financial thing is maybe not, not the best example because I, I don't want to- That's actually a good example. That made it pretty clear for me. Yeah, that makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I don't mean to reduce patients to like dollars, uh, like revenue <laughs> or whatever, but no, but like for the most part, it's just the, the model in which things have moved to emphasize documentation over care, it's, it's absurd, especially given the fact that the documentation is not giving any actionable insights. 
And the one other thing that, I mean, this is like the, the part that gets me excited because what Panit said really is true. You know, if you told me five or seven years ago or 10 years ago that we were going to be running a, a health record company, oh man, I mean, like, that's like the worst thing. If you look at our, our, our rooms at home, it's full of virtual reality. We got all these like fancy toys. Health record company would not be an exciting uh, venture, <laughs> except for the fact that it is exciting because that information that's been provided, it's no longer just being stored as this PDF or clump text mm -hmm. that no one can analyze. It actually has discrete information and therein lies the opportunity to make more intelligent decisions, to actually maybe execute on, I wouldn't say 80% of doctors work being replaced by machines, but maybe 20%. And that 20% actually might change mortality and morbidity of patients. Like that actually would be the most exciting thing in the software world is instead of sort of the cliche of Silicon Valley of everybody just wants to make the world a better place, what if your software actually sort of in a very microscopic level was making massive changes in terms of the way that care was being provided so it was being done better? But the starting point for that is that you need the substrate for that chemical reaction to occur. And the substrate is, is that you need discrete information that represents how that person is doing. We usually don't have that in the, well, I would say in the pre-input health days, we didn't have that. <laughs> That's a good plug-in. <laughs> I like it. No, it makes a lot of sense. It's very true. I mean, I'm, uh, I consider myself a, a pretty um, healthy person. To be honest, I don't go to too many physician visits, but then from a, from a, a, a database or a data or an electronic medical record system perspective, I'm basically a data point that comes up once every once a year, maybe something like that. And so in between, I mean, any number of things could have happened that could have changed right. my, my health state. It'd be useful to have some context around that for the next time that I do have a chance to go in. And so I don't have to talk for an hour to, you know, say all these things that led up to, you know, the, the, the problem that I'm having today. Exactly. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, the other thing I'll mention that is, it's interesting. Some of the headlines are focused on wait lists, right? So there's like a constant focus on wait lists, shortening wait lists, waitlist for having an operation, a hip replacement mm -hmm. or knee replacement. What if we actually found out that your quality of life was worse after the intervention than if you didn't have the intervention at all? And then would you actually be more concerned about the fact that you were waiting for a long time or the fact that the wrong thing, you were waiting for the wrong thing? And it mm -hmm. happens all the time. I mean, there's a lot of obsession about this sort of, how do we push more people through these different funnels and how do we sort of streamline care in that perspective? But a lot of what we're focused on is how do you provide more intelligent care? And that means that you need to have a lens, you need to have a view into how that person is doing. And you know, not to be too like trite about it, but it's like it's about quality of life, right? Like ultimately, that is the reason for a doctor to be a doctor, not to prescribe medications, not to operate on people, not to know everything in Harrison's internal medicine textbook, but simply. How can I improve your quality of life? And you'll be, I'll be clear about that. I'm saying quality of life, not quantity of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'll add one point to that as well. And I think that there's such an incredible appetite for quality in care when we talk about either you know, the system or even at the level of a patient. Uh, from my own experiences, uh, you know, using the collaborative health record in my practice, when I talk to people and I say, hey, you know, do you mind if I if I send you a health questionnaire? You know, a week from now, just just to see how how things turned out. I, I want to know 
that based on the decisions that we made today in your care, that, that you're doing better or worse. Um, the expression that you see on people's faces with respect to the fact that that's even a consideration, I, I think that speaks volumes. Right. And I think people aren't used to the fact that the healthcare system was actually going to want to know what the outcome was because the reality is we've never had an infrastructure to be able to do that. So when we, when we look at kind of what's happening in healthcare around the world, and in fact, even, even in Canada and Ontario and BC, we, we, I think, are beginning to see the fact that there is an appetite and a need for systems to want to know what was the outcome of the care that we're providing? What was the value of the care that we're providing? Without being able to have a, a meaningful way to collect that, we cannot, we can't measure value. Um, and that's, I think, you know, if you really kind of boil down to, to what the platform is doing, aside from, you know, making practices more efficient, making clinician lives better, improving access to care, we're really helping the system determine what is the value of care being provided. We're, we're, we're allowing for that a currency to be measured. Mm-hmm. Right. Very important point uh, with respect to conversations, discussions happening in the uh, uh, in, in healthcare and in the industry. Um, all the time. This is definitely a modern, modern discussions happening right there. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, uh, success stories. And uh, one of the ones, of course, that we've already brought up is the Mayo Clinic. Um, so we'll get to that. The other, uh, there are a number of other partners that, uh, that you've had. Um, and on the website, of course, people can go and take a look at those. And those include, I'll just mention uh, a couple, uh, CMHA, that's a Canadian uh, Mental Health Association, uh, University of British Columbia, and uh, even University of Texas at Austin. So you've had partners on both sides of the border um, in Canada and the U.S., and um, I wanted to just go into the, the work that you've done with the Mayo Clinic. Um, how did that start and, and what, um, what kind of projects have you worked on with them? Yeah, to, to some extent, like all of those um, fit into the category of what we've been talking about, which is they had a, they had a problem. Uh, Mayo Clinic, um, UBC, all, all of these different groups, which is they had invested in a lot of technology infrastructure, but they were still dependent on the paper clipboard when it came to the patient coming in. So. I mean, that's like a really strange situation. You, you know, in some of these cases, we're talking about multi-million dollar investments for making something digital, and you're still fundamentally using scanners and paper. And so what we, that, that was sort of like our entry point in, in terms of a large, uh, to, to some extent, the enterprise sales that we've done, which is, hey guys, I mean, let's be serious about this. This is absurd. You still have a paper clipboard. You still have this, you know, form that the person's filling out where that information is going nowhere. In most cases, whenever we would ask the clinicians, they never even look at the forms that are being filled out by the patient. And so it's really actually a liability tool um, to see if you check like a certain thing that would trigger um, some sort of decision to happen prior to being seen. So um, those success cases, I think were not the conversion of the paper clipboard into the questionnaire system. I think they were actually the conversion and then the realization that you can do so much more with the system. You can document so much more effectively, but you can also engage the patient longitudinally. And then the floodgates open in a lot of these institutions where like, let's say for example, in the Mayo Clinic example, we have groups all the way from psychiatry to orthopedics to PMR um, to you know gastroenterology, all these different groups that come in and they all have the same problem, which is, we kind of want to conduct research on our patients all the time, not necessarily to publish it, but because like 
research on your patient basically is n equals one study, which is like, how is this person doing that's in front of me? Not referencing papers that were, you know, took 10 years to publish. Of course, you need those as well in, in combination. So um, we, you know, we talk a lot about the big logos and like the brand names that we work with, but the success stories that frankly, I'm the most impressed about is when you can go into a clinic that's in public healthcare in Canada, that's under-resourced, that has gone through hell in terms of the sort of movement from paper to electronic, and you can convince them to take the biggest risk that they could possibly take, which is to get rid of that system, whether it's like TELUS or QHR or whatever that might be, and flip it into this new modern collaborative health record platform. And when, when we can do that in a group where there's like 10 doctors in a clinic and they're so busy and they're so sort of burnt out by tech and we can still convince them. And then the end result being, again, the part which makes me excited, uh, Panita and I are not gonna get a Nobel prize for it. But basically, I mean, like you can just imagine if, if you're in a, a, you know, a colder part of Canada in the winter and you're having to drive like two hours when someone could actually communicate with you securely through our portal system and give you that result more instantaneously to prevent that visit. Well, those are things that we consider successes um, beyond, you know, the enterprise or marquee clients that we of course are very proud about. Um, but I, you know, I love the interactions and the change that we're doing in Canada as well. We're working in New Zealand and Australia. We have clients in uh, the United Kingdom, one of the English speaking parts of the world. Uh, but, you know, as Canadian physicians, something that we're really proud about is this is translating to better care, billing, care being delivered in our system as well. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder if we can kind of put a number to it. I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm really yeah. curious just in terms One of like billion. that. <laughs> One billion dollars. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, just, I'm really curious just uh, seeing all the examples uh, that you've gone through. Um, do you have like a rough idea of like the number of patients that... Uh, that fall under all the different partners that you've had so far that would have been or potentially impacted by by uh, the, the software and this new model of uh, delivery? Yeah, I mean, this is a tough one. Panit, I'll, I'll take a stab at this because I so look far. at it like almost every day now. It's a tough one because a lot of what we do actually migrates people from existing systems. So we don't want to take credit for stuff that we're not doing. So just because we moved 300,000 patient records onto our system doesn't mean we've touched 300,000 mm -hmm. patients. I think the metric that's really interesting is number of those interactions that we enable clinics to do. So like, let's say for example, questionnaires. In our Canadian client base, we're doing north of 200,000 per month. And these are not like, how are you? Like these are like long uh, sort of logic-based tools which are triaging care and producing notes for the doctors so they can be more efficient or the care team so they can be more efficient. And that number actually is growing exponentially. I wish I could say our revenue grows exponentially, but no, our revenue is more of like a straight lineup. But the, the, the clinics that adopt our system end up using those tools. And we love looking at the pre and the post. So the pre is like how many uh, you know, secure messages were you sending before the system? Or how many questionnaires were you doing for the patient to longitudinally track their care before? And in a lot of these clinics, despite their investments, it's like nothing. And then all of a sudden they have patients booking online, they have better information and they have better analytics for making decisions. Mm -hmm. Do you find that pa are patients also um, adopting these systems really readily? I, I haven't seen any friction from the patient side. I mean, there's exceptional cases 
Uh, and, you know, to some extent, those are quite legitimate. If you're a person who, you know, has barriers to accessing technology, we can't create a world where there's no space for you to exist, especially in healthcare. But for the most part, the patients, it's like it's obvious. I work at UBC, so it's this younger population and admittedly biased sample. But I mean, this is like normal for them. If they're, you know, something else where like they, you know, had to use the phone to call us and things like that, that would just be considered absurd. Uh, for the older adults that are now on Facebook and constantly on their smartphones, it's very, very natural. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and to add to that, we've actually been involved in a number of projects specifically targeting uh, populations, like for example, the elderly, where uh, I think we're all often quick to assume that because somebody is, you know, above the age of 65, that they're unlikely to want to digitally engage in their health. And uh, so one of the studies that we've been involved in is uh, in the Teleprom G study, uh, which is being led by uh, Dr. Cheryl Forchek uh, out of Lawson. And the initial pilot study that we that we completed showed that, in fact, there was an appetite amongst um, the elderly patients who, who had ongoing mental health problems to want to be able to virtually connect with their care team. So um, I think, again, we can be all too quick to assume that because of X, Z, you know, X, Y, or Z reason that it, because of a person's age or their demographics that they're not going to want uh, digital engagement, but that's often not the case at all. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Th those are all fantastic examples. I'm really glad to hear that, uh, that a lot of people are actually, uh, a lot of clinics, a lot of physicians, and a lot of patients are adopting this and, and actually finding a lot of use um, out of this, uh, this software. And, <clears throat> and uh, Puneet, one of the things that, uh, that we were talking about earlier is, um, is the adoption of a modern, um, uh, you know, software analytics uh, and, and data science into into these platforms. So I wonder if you can speak a little bit about that. Do you how how is the Input Health adopting these um, analytical methodologies? Absolutely. So um, I think Damon's already spoken to this kind of at, at a very high level, but. One of the, as, as I'm sure you know and your listeners know, you know, machine learning, artificial intelligence, <laughs> and neural networks is sort of uh, everything that we hear about uh, you know, all day, every day. And um, if you look at one of the fundamental problems healthcare specifically faces when we talk about things like data science, it comes down to quality of data. Um, and one of, the, one of the fundamental drivers of being able to utilize these technologies is being able to have data sets uh, that that are massive, that you know are granular and, and appropriately labeled, that can be utilized to then fuel uh, different sorts of predictive algorithms and models. Um, and I feel like what what we're doing through the collaborative health record and our overall approach to how healthcare delivery should work involves collecting essentially you know every single bit of possible data that can be collected. Um, both, you know, both data points that are uh, that are that we typically already think of as health record systems having, like you know, let's say labs or vital signs or, or diagnoses, but also uh, this incredible volume of data that's historically not existed in healthcare, which is you know, patient-reported outcome measurements, which is quality of life assessments, which is you know, meaningful symptom scores uh, and uh, and you know, semi-objective data points that are collected over long periods of time. Um, that's incredibly unique to our platform. And in many ways, that positions us ideally to be a platform of choice for being able to do data science, for being able to apply machine, lear machine learning algorithms. And we also benefit from the fact that these technologies are uh, becoming ubiquitous. They're becoming readily available through 
you know, uh, giants that are uh, global giants that are already doing really the groundbreaking work. So, you know, the reality is that, you know, we don't need to do a lot of the heavy lifting that comes to, you know, discovering, you know, new algorithms as much as we have to do um, the more practical work of saying, are we fueling um, the, you know, are we fueling the right type of data? And are we providing contextually appropriate ways to be able to utilize these algorithms in clinical practice? Uh, and that's central to what we're doing. So to answer, I guess, your question more specifically, yes, we do have a comprehensive built-in and customizable analytics platform that sits on our health record system, which is, again, uh, a unique and differentiating factor of our platform compared to, again, your, your traditional legacy EMRs. Um, and that means that people can look at the business metrics of their practice, you know, how many patients are, are we seeing, you know, how many no-shows are we seeing, how many, what's our, what's our referral wait time. And you can also begin to see the structured health data elements. So what are the chronic disease outcomes of my population? Uh, what are the outcomes, and if I'm an orthopedic surgeon, uh, what are the outcomes of uh, patients that I'm seeing relative uh, for those going through surgery versus those getting an injection versus those that are getting physiotherapy. So that already, you know, that, that's sort of the, what we call the low hanging fruit, which is just data visualization and, and, and analytics, which, you know, the reality is that you would think that healthcare organizations would already be armed with this yeah. because this is not really something that's, that's, uh, that's new, but the reality is that they're not. Uh, and this is something that quite honestly, like, you know, pulls their socks off. They, they see the platform and they're saying, what, we can actually see, what happened to our uh, to our patients like after we did surgery? Like, this is this is ridiculous. Visualize it, then it's real. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be terrible, and I'm going to. I don't know why my mindset. I guess I looked at my bank account recently, and it was horrifying enough to influence all my thoughts. But um, <laughs> I'm going to use the example again. If you're going to go and sit down with a financial analyst, and they have no information about their portfolio, how they compare to others, um, how their firm compares to others. And when they want to reference something, they actually bring out a textbook from 1985 called the economics of uh, like households to sort of look up data. You would look at that like they're absurd, but nowadays it's like kind of a default assumption that there's these data sets that we can compare, measure and track. And that's the only way we can actually make progress. Um, but you know, it, it, it's, it goes beyond that. And that's where I would say like our uh, BHAG, I think that's what they call it, the big, hairy, audacious goal. Um, it's that, okay, once you have that, it's not just like I'm the air traffic controller just looking at what's happening and hopefully preventing bad things from happening. But in fact, the system is intelligent enough so that it's running at all times to make sure to optimize the community's health. And I think that's really the opportunity. We're not there yet. I think a lot of... Um, there's a lot of hype associated with it, but let's start with the basic building blocks. Let's actually get the doctor to some extent to spend some of their time as that air traffic controller, as opposed to, let's say the pilot always. Um, and then once you actually have that, then you can actually learn from those interactions. And like I mentioned about runway, like we're realistic about this. Once you wanna change something systematically in healthcare, it, it has, you know, potentially gargantuan impact in terms of people's lives. And so every use case is gonna have its own sort of path and it's gonna have its own risks. Maybe like starting out with chest pain is not the best idea in the world um, in terms of like automating triage for it, for example. But mental health, for example, 
is an area that you could probably really easily increase access and make it more intelligent. And you could actually have data to back those decisions in terms of more automated system. It, augmenting basically what, what the clinician is doing in terms of providing compassionate and empathetic care. Mm -hmm. Okay. All, all fantastic points, and I wish we could dive into each one of these things for like uh, a couple hours. But no, I, I look at the clock too. <laughs> yeah, <I know. laughs> I'm looking at the clock too. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and so I, I do want to um, kind of uh, get into a place where we can talk a little bit about um, forward-looking uh, pieces to to where you guys see this going. Uh, one of the things I, I like to touch on in these um, in these uh, podcasts is uh, from a an entrepreneur's perspective. Uh, what are the some of the key lessons that you've learned and you know if somebody was looking to get into this into into healthcare and create their own startup what advice would you give that kind of person from the lessons that you've learned don't ever do it no i'm just <laughs> <laughs> it's a crowded space we're already doing most of the work just stay out <laughs> go into social media <laughs> fair enough fair enough I, I'm just I, I'm just joking, of course. I, I think for, forward-looking is is the fact that now that we're getting larger and larger amounts of data, more and more users, more and more interactions that are being facilitated in sort of that asynchronous care model, how can we now translate those things into better decisions every day, more efficiency, ultimately in terms of our physician colleagues uh, and clinician colleagues, I should say in general, how can we get you home earlier so you can spend more time with your family comfortably um, or whoever you want to spend your time with? Um, or theoretically, uh, how can we make it so that you're making more money so that you can do more stuff with your money? I, I, I don't really care. I'm sort of a libertarian in that case. You can decide. But ultimately, how do we sort of solve this problem related to the burnout that's happening in our community that's directly correlated with these arduous and sort of inefficient documentation systems and by proxy going back to our core which is making that system more accessible and better for patients because we're all patients we're all going to be patients um, you know it's a scary thought i think all three of us are relatively young we probably very interact very rarely ourselves in terms of clinical care um, but even if we're just going to be purely opportunistic let's make the system better right like let's make this more accessible let's make it so that it's more intelligent I think one of the most horrifying things that I saw in medical school and in residency was the lack of data-driven decisions that happen every day and also the lack of sort of systems to actually report on things when they don't go the right way. And I mean, that's really what it, what it comes down to. So um, for, for groups that are coming into healthcare, my, my advice, which I hope you can truncate because I'm talking too much, but basically, is if you have a noble intention and you want to make this system better, there's endless opportunities. I think for those that are coming in purely for the economics of it, I would give them a warning. This is one area where there's very little tolerance to sort of that kind of behavior, especially if you're new to the game. There's a lot of players in the game already that are quite, um, you know, just purely revenue driven. We don't need to name them, I'm sure you can name them. But basically, if you're new and coming in here, have that integrity-based approach. Start with it. Because if they're hard on Facebook, they're gonna be way harder on a digital health company. And Theranos is a good example that sort of hits, that, hits home there. And the other, you know, I can name endless examples now 
of companies that think you can, they, they can come into healthcare, radically transform it with, you know, uh, you know, grandiose statements. I mean, I, I would say for those people, choose another industry. Uh, media, social media is a good one for that. <laughs> yeah, and Puneet, I'll, I'll let you have the, uh, the last word on this. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, Damon really got the point home there, which is really that healthcare is one of those areas where I think you really have to ask yourself why you're doing this. There, if you're honest, if you're purely just looking to make money, I just I simply don't understand why people would specifically pick healthcare for that. And usually it's because they don't actually understand the the industry. Um, and I think you know the harm that can generate from that is especially when we talk about kind of you know like you know the Gartner hype cycle and and people sort of using terms to to provide you know quick band aid solutions, which unfortunately get marketed very heavily, is that they disenfranchise the overall system when it doesn't actually work. Um, and when and the reality is like if you are looking to make a, a quick fix, it's un, it's unlikely going to be something that has a, a long term sustainable. Uh, positive impact in, in this particular industry. So really ask yourself why you're doing it. And, and if you have genuine intention, then 100% just be, be prepared for the long road. Um, you know, forge, forge partnerships and important relationships with the healthcare system um, and, and, you know, build that trust because ultimately your, your biggest, um, you know, your biggest weapon, your biggest ally is going to be the system at the end of the day. Mm, well said, well said. Okay. Well, uh, Damon and Puneet, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure having you uh, on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed hearing you guys talk very passionate about the, the role of technology and uh, how we can actually transform uh, models of healthcare delivery, uh, specifically to improve you know, population and, and global health as well. So from my perspective, I wish you ongoing success in the work that you're doing and in partnering with uh, clinics and organizations uh, all around the world to improve healthcare delivery. and uh, I guess we'll we'll be in touch. Thank you, we'll Dorian. You, we'll, we'll send you a questionnaire to check in on you after. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, sounds you, great. Send you a questionnaire but, one week from now. <laughs> <laughs> looking forward to looking forward to. You take to care. Our, Thank you so much, Dorian. Take care, Dorian. Bye bye. To our viewers and listeners, we'll see you next time.